0: This is The Hindu on Books, a weekly podcast from India's national newspaper on the latest and the best from the world of literature. Hello and welcome to The Hindu's Books Podcast. I'm Anand Krishna, your host for this episode. Today we are joined by Sanjaya Baru and Suwasni Haider to talk about the new book, A New Cold War, Henry Kissinger and the Rise of China. Time to coincide with the 50th anniversary of Kissinger's historic 1971 visit to China. The book examines the many legacies of both the man and the visit, the legacies and consequences of his ideas, and the impact for China and US-China relations, and more broadly even for India and the world. We will be discussing all those issues today. The book is a collection of essays, edited by Dr. Baru and Rahul Sharma. Dr. Baru, was formerly the media advisor to former Prime Minister Manmohan Singh, Director for Geoeconomics and Strategy at the International Institute of Strategic Studies, and a visiting professor at the B. School of Public Policy. Suasani Hyder, who's also with us today, is among the authors of this collection, writing an essay about Kissinger and the rise of China from the South Asian perspective. Suasani is a national editor and diplomatic affairs editor of The Hindu. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you, Anand.
1: Thank you, Anand.
0: Well, Dr. Baru, the obvious question first uh, to you, if you could tell our listeners, why
2: Kissinger and why this book? Well, why the book is easy. uh, 2021 is the 50th anniversary of uh, the rapprochement, the reset between the United States and China uh, that began with Kissinger's famous visit uh, to China in July 1971. So in a sense, it's a milestone. 2021 also happens to be the 100th anniversary of the establishment of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, But it's also a year in which there's a lot of focus on US-China relations, thanks to uh, the talk of a new Cold War and uh, the China-US trade war, et cetera. Uh, And of course, the creation of new forums like the Quad, aimed at uh, uh, taking on China's rise. So there's a lot of interest in this US-China relationship. And we felt it's useful to go back and see where it all began. What was the role of um, the, Repub- the, the Republicans, the uh, Henry Kissinger and, and, and Richard Dixon? And what has been the impact of that decision for different countries, different parts of the world? Um, so when, we, when I and my colleague Rahul uh, reached out to about uh, 18 different uh, authors from around the world, surprisingly, every one of them got back and said, yes, we will write for you. I didn't expect all 18 to reply, but all of them did. And therefore we have a book. And suhasni uh, you are one of
0: those 18. Uh, before we come to the book, uh, many of the issues, uh, very timely issues that it brings up. Uh, in your view, how do you think Kissinger is generally seen today? Uh, obviously, he's been such a controversial figure, but as, as time has gone on, do you think in some strange way that is less so today than it was, say, 10 years ago?
1: You know, of course, the balm of time heals many wounds uh, and that's the only reason one can assume that uh, Dr. Kissinger travels the world today as an international statesman. Uh, Of course, he was given uh, the Nobel Prize. Uh, He was in India a couple of years ago, um, uh, received a very, very high powered reception by Prime Minister Narendra Modi and others. Uh, and his views on, uh, uh, on China are still very respected. Uh, but I think what this book brings out very much is really what was going on at the time. And the kind of mistakes, some by commission, some by omission, some simply by a lack of empathy for what those decisions were going to do uh, for the region, for the world. Uh, Dr. Kissinger and uh, uh, his president, President Nixon, uh, come across as, um, as, as, as having brought about a massive change in the world without necessarily understanding where it would lead. And that's why this book was uh, very interesting for me personally to uh, research for, uh, because you take a look at all the things that uh, these two leaders discussed, and it was really these two leaders because what the book brings out uh, from various essays is how little others were consulted on the issue and how secret uh, the entire process was, uh, that how much they actually changed, but how much of it was, was probably unwitting, not what they have planned.
0: Right. And before we come to the book, um, I wanted to get you both to share your thoughts. Speaking of making policy without consequence and lack of empathy, uh, on our minds, of course, now uh, is 1971, of course, but a more recent event, uh, which is the 20-year U.S. project in Afghanistan, uh, which, of course, as we speak, is coming to this very dramatic end and to put it quite plainly, it's been a debacle for the US. Uh, I wanted you both to kind of look at it from the prism and framework of Kissinger uh, and generally his impact on American foreign policy. Uh, Dr. Baru, given that the fall of Kabul is being compared by some to the fall of Saigon, it's quite striking that Kissinger himself has been quite critical of uh, how the US has handled Afghanistan, not just the exit, but the last 20 years. He even wrote an essay on August 25th that the entire process, in, in one sense, this whole this liberal idea of transforming Afghanistan into a modern state with democratic institutions, elections, a constitution was doomed from the start. What did you make of his assessment of, of the last 20 years of, of America
2: and Afghanistan?
0: Well, first of all,
2: Anand, uh, Afghanistan uh, in, in probably is the last debacle or the last uh, tragic end of the uh, consequences of the first Cold War. Uh, you know, we have forgotten the first Cold War, right? Because it's almost 30 years since the Soviet Union disappeared and that Cold War officially ended. But the consequences of that Cold War are still with us. They are there in Korea, in the division of the Koreas. They are there in the, in the creation of Israel in the problems in Palestine, and of course, they were there in in our neighborhood in Afghanistan. Afghanistan became what what it has now become because of the Cold War. It was essentially a battleground between the Soviet Union and the United States. And uh, the Afghans, like many other parts of the world, uh, people paid the price for this superpower rivalry. We are now entering a new phase where there is a different kind of superpower rivalry. Now, Mr. Kissinger was a false prophet of the first Cold War. I am not particularly impressed by his attempts to become some kind of a prophet for the second Cold War. Uh, did he say what he wrote this week? This week in the Economist uh, to President Trump, when President Trump reached out to the Taliban in Doha, I wonder. You know, if he did, then of course I'd have a little more regard for him. I have argued in my own chapter in my book uh, that Kissinger was a strategist, probably in the European kind of sense uh, during the Cold War, because for him, everything was about the Soviet Union. But very quickly, he became a lobbyist. And for the last 40 years, Henry Kissinger has essentially been a corporate lobbyist, masquerading as as a strategist. Um, So I'm not sure whether his uh, wisdom is that of uh, hindsight or whether there's some foresight in it.
0: And Suhasini, so what does this entire debacle in Afghanistan tell you about uh, the U.S. establishment, of course, I'm, I'm sort of generalizing here, about their ability to kind of reflect on their own lessons, whether it's Vietnam or interventions elsewhere? What does it tell you about uh, their ability to, to reflect and
1: correct? Well, you know, this is uh, one of the areas that perhaps has not been looked at very closely. And uh, as a part of my research, I did uh, allude a a little bit to this aspect that if, as Dr. Baru points out, the complete focus was on how to counter the Soviet Union, uh, how to deal with the Cold War and win it convincingly, then one of the components of that was, of course, the outreach to China, but subsequently, it was the idea that built in Washington that somehow the answer to communism was going to be uh, a kind of uh, regenerated uh, and uh, politicized and uh, armed and trained Islamic radicalism. So uh, the, 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 the seeds, if you like of what the US eventually did in Afghanistan, but in in other countries as well, where uh, Islamist fundamentalist terror groups have often found common cord with the US, with the allies of the US like Saudi Arabia, simply because there was this uh, overweening need to counter communism as an ideology. Uh, And then the results of that that followed. So obviously it does seem a little overdone and overworn to continuously blame the US for all that's happened in Afghanistan because so many players have played malign interests, have played a a role that has been against uh, the interests of the Afghan people. But the beginnings of this thought uh, really do go back to the 1970s when the US began to encourage uh, a kind of fundamentalism as uh, as an answer to uh, to communism but also the idea of arming and training uh, these uh, these uh, these uh, mujahideen if you like in Afghanistan and later you know the fact that the Taliban had recourse to american sing, uh, stinger missiles Uh, and much more training that was facilitated by Pakistan with American support. Um, That is essentially the the, the underpinnings of what we see today in Afghanistan. And if the Taliban as a force has never gone away, Uh, it is perhaps also because somewhere there, the United States has not been, uh, uh, shall we say, it has not shunned the idea that you cannot uh, uh, shun the idea of using religion and religious fervor uh, and giving it a hard edge with, uh, with weaponry uh, in, in order to achieve its ends. Uh, um, so I, as I said, I, 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 I think that there were many thought processes going on, but if there is a common thread in what we see today in Afghanistan and what we saw in, at that time as the outreach to China, the rise of China, the openings to China, uh, it was this, that you wanted to counter uh, this idea of Soviet communism in whatever way possible. And sometimes uh, uh, without caring about the the effects of
0: it. You wonder, Dr. Baru, is the US headed in a similar path now with with its focus on China? You've titled this book, A New Cold War. In your view, how much of this ideological element that you had in the first Cold War do you see uh, in the current state of US-China relations why do you call this a cold war was something I wanted to ask you. Uh, I thought that there was an interesting argument in the chapter by Kishore Mabubani, uh, who makes the point that it's curious that the U.S. is increasingly framing its competition with China in ideological terms. But he makes the argument uh, that that's not how many other democracies see it. And he points to India and Indonesia who don't seem as threatened by China's values, by China's model as
2: the U.S. does. Well, first of all, as far as the title of the book is concerned, uh, you know, we were grappling with the title till Blinken met um, his counterpart in uh, Alaska, I think. Um, and then the entire Western media uh, declared that a second Cold War had begun, a new Cold War had begun, um, which, you know, may have been an exaggerated, kind of typical media kind of headline. But then at that moment, my publisher said, Ah, let's go with this title, uh, The New Cold War. So, you know, it's it's a catchy title. And uh, one thing I've learned for writing books is that you have to listen to your publisher when it comes to title of the book. Content is yours, the title is often theirs. <laughs> but having said that, I think you know the real issue and taking forward some of what Souhasri has said just now, you see the the Um, in its obsession to finish off the Soviet Union, the United States uh, allowed the rise of China or facilitated the rise of China, as well as the rise of jihadi uh, or Islamic radicalism. These were the two weapons the United States used uh, in its battle against China in the first Cold War, uh, Soviet Union in in the original Cold War. And we were the victims of both. Now, the fundamental change in Indo-U.S. relationship that was facilitated by the approach taken both by Prime Minister Atal Bihari Vajpayee and Prime Minister Manmohan Singh, uh, the new dialogue, the security strategic dialogue between India and the U.S., uh, was based on the premise that the U.S. recognizes that both Islamic radicalism and the rise of China are as much a challenge for the U.S. as they are for India. That was the foundational premise of the Indo-US nuclear deal, of the Indo-US strategic relationship that began with Rajpayee and ended with Mamounsi. Now, given that background, what are we seeing today? We are certainly seeing a closer cooperation between the US and India as far as China is concerned. But, But the concern that I have, which I've expressed in a recent column, is that has the US in its Afghanistan decision unleashed or uh, once again Islamic radicalism in the region that will hurt me, that will hurt mm-hmm. India. In other words, you know, will India, ha- have India's interests been taken into account or not? And is the US-India partnership only about dealing with China? I mean, the whole obsession with the Indo-Pacific, which is supposed to begin with the Andaman Islands and, you know, go on to the South China Sea and, and you know, the Indo-Pacific, they don't talk about Uh, the Western um, uh, Indian Ocean and uh, the Arabian Sea. While the problem for us, the the real security challenge for us comes from the West, from from the rise of Islamic radicalism in Afghanistan, Pakistan, in this entire region. So I think there is a question mark that has suddenly uh, arisen in the understanding that we've had with the US. And I, in fact, argue in my new column uh, that, that we need to address this question. Because if you go back and look at the whole um, Kissinger-Nixon outreach, and that has been the focus of the book we are talking about, it was all done with no regard for India's interests. India did not figure in the calculations of the United States in its outreach to China in the 1970s and later on into the 1990s till 2000. In fact, it was only after 2008 after the global financial crisis or the transatlantic financial crisis, that the U.S. suddenly woke up to the China challenge, right? And now this focus is so much in the China challenge that we are not focusing enough on the other challenge, which is going to be unleashed by, by the acquisition of territory uh, by by the Taliban and the Islamic radical elements uh, across the region. And uh, Dr. Bauer, you argue in your
0: chapter that, uh, to put it bluntly uh, in terms of U.S., goals vis-a-vis China, there was some element of greed as well. And you look at the economics of it all. uh, You're quite critical of the fact that uh, the US was, uh, for so many years, happy to be a willing participant, for instance, in allowing China to carry on with its trade policy, with its exchange rate manipulation, uh, which the US only belatedly began to criticize. Uh, The question that I would have is, uh, how much of all of this to you in terms of driving US-China engagement uh, was, to put it plainly, these commercial interests, or, but, or how much of it was, uh, say, if we're being a little kinder, uh, coming to terms with the idea that China's rise was uh, was inevitable, and say, if, if it wasn't General Motors that was going to go in, it would have been Volkswagen or some other company? Uh,
2: true. The, there are several factors that drove that relationship, but all the heavy lifting, the China's entry into the World Trade Organization, the normalization of China as a trading nation uh, before its normalization as a market economy, was all the heavy lifting was done by the United States, by the Clinton administration, with a lot of backing and financial support from the US business. So, you know, there is one thing to say that this is the direction in which history is going to move. And the other is to be actively engaged in accelerating the pace of that change. What the US did was to accelerate the pace in the hope that in fact, General Motors would get there before Volkswagen, you know? I mean, <laughs> and, and, and it is that commercial interest which Kissinger represented, which, which is Kissinger Associates represented. It was in the interest of US capital, not even the interest of US labor, because after all, the opening to China created, resulted in the deindustrialization of the United States and the creation of this unemployed white working class that became Donald Trump's voter, voting base. And, you know the, the impoverishment of the United States working class was a direct product of the outreach to China and, and the acquisition of the China, American market by Chinese companies, or rather by American companies based in China and bringing goods back to, to the US. And all that has been recorded. In fact, I quote at length Richard Lighthizer, who was the economic guru of Donald Trump, um, who made these points long back. And the problem for me, and I look at all of these issues as an Indian. I don't claim to be anything beyond being an Indian in my concern about these issues. Uh, is that I, I the India was the collateral uh, you know, bore the collateral damage of a lot of these policies, including the Ch- China trade war. I mean, GSP was taken away from India. You know, your problem is with China, but you decide to hurt India. I mean, this was ridiculous. You know.
0: Coming closer to home, uh, Swasini, in your chapter, you look at South Asia uh, and you begin by saying things would have turned out differently if it was in Pakistan that ended up as this crucial avenue uh, to, to Kissinger's attempts to, to engage with China early on. Uh, can you speak to us a little bit uh, about the South Asian perspective? Uh, Dr. Baru, of course, mentioned a broader picture of how India often was collateral, in some of of the ways in which they engage with China.
1: This speaks a little bit to what I was saying about the the unwitting kind of consequences of so much. Um, For example, I make the point that if it had not been Pakistan and the US was pursuing the idea of opening, uh, making an opening with China, with other countries like uh, Poland, like France, uh, like Romania. uh, The funny thing was with Romania, they actually sent the same messages that they sent through China. Uh, to uh, uh, to Washington D.C., but the Romanian channels took longer, believe it or not, uh, because it was believed that they had to take uh, uh, you know clearances through the Soviet channel first before passing them on. And so it was actually uh, President Yahya Khan who sent the direct message from the Chinese, uh, from the Americans to the Chinese, and then back um, from uh, you know uh, when the Chinese responded, he took that message to Washington. And it was because Pakistan became such a crucial linchpin for America because it wasn't just as a message bearer, but for Kissinger's uh, famous meeting and in fact a a, a subsequent visit as well, um, where he went to Pakistan, feigned an illness. President Yahya Khan uh, famously, you know, escorted him out of the banquet, and then he got on a flight which was waiting for him, flew to Beijing for those meetings uh, of two days with the Chinese leadership that set the ball rolling. Uh, And because the US was so focused on this opening to China, we see what eventually became one of the greatest tragedies that when uh, it came to Pakistan's uh, atrocities in uh, what was then East Pakistan, Uh, when it came to the kind of, um, you know, the Operation Searchlight that had already begun in April, 1971, uh, the the kind of neglect of Bangladesh or uh, East Pakistan at the time during the cyclone, the US's uh, response to that was so strongly that it was on Pakistan's side. And in fact, I, I speak about this very famous memo in which kissinger writes to nixon saying what would you like to do when it comes to uh, pakistan and what is uh, emerging as india's support to the rebels there in um, in uh, bangladesh uh, and uh, uh, you know he gave him three suggestions he said a you could support pakistan uh, unequivocally um, uh, you could support pakistan in terms of uh, excuse me in terms of uh, uh, you know humanitarian assistance other assistance you could maintain some kind of neutrality which uh, kissinger feels would just help india win the war uh, or you could help Pakistan end the conflict. Those were the words, uh, which meant that, you know, you actually support Pakistan in that. And and Kissinger's response was option C. And then he writes in his own hands, to all hands, do not squeeze Yaya at this time. What did at this time refer to? It referred to the fact that they were so close to a deal with China. So that becomes the beginnings of, uh, you know, uh, the US's uh, focus on china that allowed it to not look at what else happened and of course other events followed you know the indo soviet uh, treaty for example followed just a few months later the creation of bangladesh happened um, we also saw in in a certain sense india becoming an un, uh, unrivaled uh, sort of force in south asia at the time uh, because i write about how nepal for example nepali commentators said that if At the time of the 1970 one war, India was able to do this without being uh, challenged by any of the other global powers. Then clearly in South Asia, India now retains a certain uh, space. And then finally, as Dr. Baru said, this then led for South Asia to a whole new situation with China, the rise of China, the kind of um, exceptions made for China, its presence at the WTO, allowing its economy to grow, perhaps looking away uh, during China's more hegemonistic moves, uh, and then finally coming to terms with the fact that now the new uh, the new Russia, if you like, is China for the United States. All of that has had such an impact on uh, uh, South Asia, and this is something I know, Anant, you cover a lot of when it comes to how China has approached South Asia, and today is in a position where it has stronger ties with most of India's neighbors. Um, and it has more trade with India's neighbors. It has more of an influence in many respects. Uh, It has even formed some kind of a poverty alleviation grouping that includes most of India's neighbors, but not India itself. Uh, So one could argue that all of this accrues back to that time in 1971, and which is why it's so important to study this period of history.
0: The final word to you, Dr. Baru. what I really enjoyed about this book, uh, though it's ostensibly about 1971, It's really timely. Uh, There's so much in there, I think, uh, whether you're interested in foreign affairs or a policymaker in terms of lessons we can reflect on. Uh, I would like to ask you when we are now at a moment where we're looking at closer India-US relations, looking at the quad that you mentioned, we're looking at US-China ties on a downward spiral. Uh, Do you think this era is here to stay or would you share the caution of one of your authors, uh, Kanti Bajpai, who makes a case that you know, this US fascination for China in many ways, uh, this idea of a G2, it may go away, but in many ways it may lurk below the surface, waiting to come back in some other form. Oh, so what would you say uh, would be perhaps maybe warnings that India should keep at the back of its mind at this current moment?
2: Well, first of all, um, on about the book, I'm, I'm glad you said what you said. I should thank all my uh, the co-authors, all the contributors. I think they have some very, very interesting uh, people bill hermannly Kishore bangubani Kant bajpai rana mitter Tesi Schaeffer, igor Yurgan, samir sarin a whole range of you know fascinating ayesha sindhika from pakistan so i would really uh, say that the book strength lies in the range of opinions of very very uh, talented people but on the specific question you asked anand you know um, the united states and china have a relationship that is in many ways fundamentally different from US relationship with most other countries. It goes back a long way, you know. It goes back a very, very long way. New York has a Chinatown. San Francisco has a Chinatown. I mean, you know, China has been part of American culture for a long time. Uh, So the fascination for China that Americans have had and the fascination for America that Chinese have had, I have seen it myself, you know, at very close quarters while visiting the US and while visiting China. So as an Indian, I would never uh, you know, rule out the possibility of a reconciliation. Um, and, and the Chinese are very clever. Uh, they, they could well do things that please the Americans as, a, you know, as we go forward. So I think that is something India should always be alive to. But I think the most promising development uh, today is really the Quad. Because the Quad has in it not just the United States, but it has Japan and Australia which are as worried, uh, if not more, about China's rise and its influence in the region as we are. And therefore, even if the G2 at some point were to happen, uh, I don't think Japan and Australia uh, would feel any more comfortable than India uh, with such a powerful China in the neighborhood. So I think the Quad is an extremely important development. It requires more fleshing out. You know, Quad to be worried only about COVID and climate change. One is a near-term challenge, the other is a long-distance challenge. I think we need to develop a larger economic agenda in the Quad, which is, I believe, what the Quad is trying to address. And I think that is uh, one positive development that has come out. I, of course, have long believed that a country with with which India should have much closer relations is Japan. Uh, Japan is uh, important for India for a variety of reasons. And therefore i'm hoping that as we go forward those relationships will crystallize
0: the book is a new cold war henry kissinger and the rise of china Sanjaya baru and swasni Haider. thank you both so much for joining the hindu on books podcast
2: thank you
1: thank you thank you anand it's nice to be on the podcast in a different role hopefully
0: you'll come back again swasni uh, on the books podcast as an author we look forward to having you back and dr baru as always, a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you. Thank you to
0: you. Thank you for listening to The Hindu on Books. You can now find The Hindu's podcasts such as In Focus and Parlay on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other major platforms. Write to us with comments and feedback at Socmed4, S-O-C-M-E-D4 at the rate thehindu.co.in.